0: Cheeky Volley episode thirty. We've got myself here, Alex Levine, Kabir Mehta, Asher, and Dan Cohen, Colin from Houston. How you guys doing?
1: What's up, mate?
2: Doing well,
3: guys. Hey. Glad to be here. What are yeah. your? All right,
0: Asher. What are your impressions of the of the match from what you saw?
3: So the the opening few games, they started how pretty much how Novak was playing his previous few matches, in which he was. Uh, dialed in, and it, it looked like Sitsipas would not make it close. Um, but so he went four-one up. But uh, after he went four-one up, then Sitsipas kind of got got into the game, and I was really, really impressed by how Sitsipas played from four-one down in the first set right to the end of the match. Uh, it was pretty much even. Uh, they, they broke each other one 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 time each in the third set, but he just he just played two really bad tie breaks. And especially what, what did you like about <laughs> if anyone wants to watch the second set tie break, it might be the worst tennis <laughs> you've ever seen. <laughs> what
0: was what, what happened in the second set tie break?
3: It was just error after error, um everyone losing their serve. And then Sitsipaz just uh Sitsipaz got tied, Novak got tied, but then Sitsipass was tighter. Uh and then Novak Novak ended up taking it.
1: But keep in mind too, we should remember in that second set, Sitsi had a set point. Joker hit yeah, yeah forehand yeah. up the and line. And then he just became him. the wall. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so in this in um in the second set, Sitsipas really got a hold into the game. He he really started hitting the forehand. And you could tell that Novak wasn't really comfortable because he he progressively got tighter. So Sitsipas made no inroads at all in the first set in Novak's service game. And in the second set it was like uh, a 30, all then a 15-30, then another 15-30, and then he finally got a break point when Novak was serving to stay in the set, and they played a really long rally, uh, which Novak bossed, by the way. It was it was very strong from him on that rally. But since the past, I felt like he needed to to take to, to pull the trigger at some point in that rally because against Novak, you're not going to get many chances, and he didn't quite do that. Yeah, he played Damn. that whole
2: point right up the middle, right? If I recall, yeah. Yeah.
1: one one. Th- one thing I want to talk about is there was a clear strategy from Djokovic's part of attacking the Sitsi forehand the entire match. And this is this reminds me of probably about a decade ago when Joker started doing that when he played Nadal on clay, just going after the forehand. Um Alex and I have talked about spoken about this before. I think Sitsi mid court when he gets a forehand approach is one of the most um mm. devastating players, the amount of points he wins mid court. It broke down today. Can, can you comment a bit on the, this this strategy of just going after the forehand rather than what we've seen top players try to neutralize the Sitsi backhand?
3: Um, I didn't. I, I think, think it actually, played I played. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I, I was just gonna say I think that it played the Djokovic's strengths throughout the entire tournament, which is uh, his his backhand up the line, and also he's been ripping forehand cross courts, just enormous. So I don't know if it was so much an attempt to break down Tsitsipas's forehand as much as it was just playing into his current strengths. Uh, I mean, we've, we've talked about this. He's hitting just absolutely monster forehands right now that I, I haven't seen from him lately. Uh, he's stepping into it. He's getting a lot of bite on the ball. Uh, and I think he's just able to kind of completely neutralize him on both ends while hitting the shots that he wants.
1: I like so, yeah, that. I think, no, it, it, it's unreal how he's playing on top of the baseline and he's, he's, sitting, yeah. I have not seen it even, you know, a decade ago, he hit bigger. I think now he's hitting bigger than he's ever hit. Agreed.
0: Yeah, and he—I uh, yeah, think and they that, said in the his first round, um, his first his first round match. I think uh, I sent in the chat what they were saying. His his forehand was like five or six miles an hour faster than it was on average all last year or something. Yeah, that's a bit um, so he's. I I feel like maybe some of that was I think uh, two things that might have been going on. One is I think he uh maybe this concern about the leg he wanted to end points faster maybe is why he was hitting generally bigger he felt like he couldn't like hang back and grind as much and then two i feel like him and his team because he knows he's so much better than the rest of the world they come up with like sort of like data driven goals or other goals for him before tournaments start like and i I don't know exactly what they are i'd love for them i'd love to know what they are is a whole team of like uh a data team along with his like coaching and, and sort of physios um but i feel like some of those could be like we're gonna go for a certain amount of shots per rally or the forehand's gonna be this big um and he sort of does things to m- make himself chase a carrot uh which i feel like is maybe part of it but that's yeah, just I can, a uh sort I, I of conjecture. yeah absolutely.
2: i think there's also like an alpha element to it right where it's like i'm gonna feed you forehands all day long and
3: i'm still gonna beat you
1: yeah it's definitely true yeah
3: Asher, what were you going to uh, say? Alex, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. If, if anyone's interested, there's a great uh, tennis.com podcast with uh, Novak's old uh, data consultant, Craig, Craig O'Shaughnessy is his name.
0: Yeah, Craig O'Shaughnessy.
3: And he he, he goes into detail about how Novak was using, using data for like a few years to be his opponents. But then he also mentioned that when Goran became the primary voice in Novak's locker room,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
3: the, he, he moved away from, that, from the data-driven approach. I um, think he's back to it
0: now, though. I think they said he's rehired a lot of he? people.
3: I think oh, so. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah. O- okay. Well, um, maybe. May- yeah, maybe you're right. But but one of the interesting uh, points from from that podcast was that Novak is a really good problem solver, and he is very easily able to adjust to his opponents, like on the fly. So that that's what's made him successful in the past. Although having said that, it was a very different approach in this tournament where he was hitting a lot flatter, a lot harder. Also, yeah.
1: can talk about how good Novak serve is. One thing I've noticed in the last two years, specifically last year during Wimbledon, um, how quickly he holds most of his service games and then on each receiving game he gets into the game. Um forces you to save break points and then goes back on serve holds it holds it love holds it 40 15 not only is he doing it again this year but he's serving bigger first serve percentage between 70 and 80 almost each match winning 70 80 uh points on first serve
0: i also think he does i think better than anyone on tour he finds a balance between not overhitting his serve but having good service games compared to like uh um we'll talk about him later but like kurakach who serve is huge but is it but his service games aren't necessarily that good i think there's a big difference between and you even see this with kirio sometimes where i feel like he'll come out serving huge the serve itself is like the best shot on tour but the service games are not so good um and he might like uh lose a service game i feel like novak's service games are so tight
1: for
2: sure
0: dan do you have something you want to say to that
2: I was just saying, you know, we talked about this in the chat, like he was picking his spots, which, you know, he does, but I felt like he got so much action off the bounce on his serve this tournament, whether it was going up the tee on, on the ad side or, or out wide, like the ball was just flying through the court. Um, and on top of that, he's got kind of a sneaky serve, right? Like he'll routinely hit 120, 125s, but you don't think of him as like a big server. And I don't totally know, maybe it's because of his Sort of gumby like motion, where he doesn't sort of look like he's coming into the ball as powerfully as some of the big hitters. But mm-hmm. I mean, he's his serve is right up there with the best.
1: That's, that's yeah, I I think that's a that. great point. It's so true. The, the, his like elastic motion is it. It is hard to appreciate just how big and heavy of a serve really is.
2: And and I think that's kind of like th- that's my opinion on Djokovic's game at large. You know, like. He's not the kind of guy that you think is going to rip winners from any shot that you feed him, the way that Federer does, the way that Alcaraz does. And, you know, there are elements that you want to take from a consistency and mechanics standpoint. But, like, when you go through the motions of building a perfect tennis player, you usually don't arrive at Djokovic's shots, maybe with the exception of the backhand, but the complete package is undeniable.
0: And coming back to the Surf for a second, the one thing I really like is the um he uses like he always hits us well uh, two things he kind of hits a slice serve most of his serves have some a bit of slice on them but they're like very different looks from the same ball toss like I think when he he disguises his t-serve super well and then his uh wide slice serve I think really comes really high up on the opponents if they're righty forehand or opens up the court huge which I think is also one thing that he probably does better than anyone ever is just making the court so large.
1: Yeah, and I think one point about Federer's serve that people used to always talk about that I think also exists in Joker's serve but goes a bit unnoticed is he's got the same toss for every serve.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. The, one, the other thing I want to come back to, my other point about the serve is like, I don't know when this changed. I feel like it's different from when I was taught as a kid. Like, there's no true flat serve anymore. Every serve that players are hitting, regardless how big they're going, has like a ton of action on it. It's like... If it's 120, it's 120 with a t- like a ton of spin. Um, and I feel like you see that from him where every one of his serves, even if they're in that like 115 to 125 range, they're always going to have uh, usually like a big kind of like slice
1: top spin that just makes it really hard to get into service games.
0: The only Real player... quick though
1: about his... Sorry, you go, Kabir. No, it's the only player I can think of right now that at least every service game throws in just a pure flat serve is probably Bublik. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> But it's. I feel like when we were younger, like there was more no flat servers.
1: Yeah, Yeah, no, it's it's definitely. um, I wonder how much of that is like technology though. Like the strings, you can get so much
2: more spin on them now that doesn't. You know, you can kind of have both, right? You can get the pace and you can throw some action on it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think
0: it's both. I think it's they're trying to maximize their margin, and then also the the rackets themselves. Like it's hard to hit to with like a pure drive or like any of the Babolat rackets. It's pretty hard to hit a flat, a true flat serve. I think. Yeah. Um, but just to talk about his return games, obviously that's always been like, you know, kind of one of the things that sets him apart, uh, before this match, they were saying that he's the tournament leader in early breaks. This is up until this semifinal, uh, and early breaks converted, uh, often winning. So, and that's to say like he wins a set after breaking serve in one of the first four games of the set. And then he's also 96% of the time uh he'll do this which means that when he gets a fast start in sets he's like he's always going to get that early break uh which i think has shown because he's of the sets he's won in the tournament he only lost one set but of the sets he he's won so many of them until this city cost match really are like six one six two like they're like very quick kind of sweeps the court uh or yeah, so the...
3: On, on on that it definitely felt that he his his dominance relative to the rest of the field was a lot higher than it's been uh, in previous tournaments, I think in in a few other tournaments he kind of always has this weird match in like the quarters or like round four where it looks like he's sleepwalking and then it goes into the fifth set. but he was dialed in to a point that I, I don't think we've ever, ever seen this before. and then watching him through the through the whole tournament, do you guys think that this is this was like peak Novak this was like him at his best
1: easily it's the highest level I've ever seen from him
3: I visit think- to uh,
1: sorry go Dan. No, I was just going to say, like, the
2: only comp I could maybe muster is 2015. Um, yeah. But, like, 2015 didn't feel quite as big. I-, I feel like he he won because he was the wall, um, which he just – he's the only player I've seen that has, like, an ability to just completely become a wall and not miss a ball for 45 minutes. This was, like, an aggressive Djokovic, uh, which-, which I didn't see back in 2015. Aggressive. I think a bit of a
0: combination – a bit of a combination between his uh, very early in his career, I think before he was winning slams, he was very aggressive and he had to learn how to tone it down a bit. And his like maturity kind of came together here. I have I have a few more thoughts on this, but Kabir, let's go to you and then after you wanted to jump in.
1: No, to Dan's point, also what I think is different now compared to twenty fifteen is that I think. The pace of his matches—he seems to almost be playing with this urgency to finish the matches sooner. and I don't know if that's because of this injury that's been, uh, you know, <laughs> on, on the radar, but it's definitely a sense of urgency in the actual like game-to-game method of the match.
0: What about or Asher? What, what were you going to say? And then I want—can one of you guys take us through what what 2015 looked like? Because I feel like that's not uh thats not uh, so clear yeah. to probably most people listening.
3: Yeah. So. So for me, the best I've ever seen Novak play was in the 2016 semifinal against Federer, which he won in straight sets. And Federer played at, well at that day. And he, at which tournament? At which uh, tournament? Australian Australian Open. And Federer, Federer was in good form. He played well that day. The course was relatively quick. And Novak won the first two sets, 6-1, 6-2. Uh, and that was the first time I've ever seen Novak against Federer because against Federer, he kind of tries to hit a lot of spin to Federer's backhand. He does a lot of defense, but that was the first time he against Fed that he started taking it early, and I'd never seen that before. Um, And the commentators, and then it ended up going to four sets. But the commentators said that it was the closest, it was the most one-sided four-set match they've ever seen. So I think that's the best I've ever seen him play. And I think his his performance here was his dominance over the rest of the field was higher, but I'm not sure it was at a, a higher level because in 2015 16 he was kind of he was playing fed at a very high level but the guys he was playing in this tournament are guys he's always kind of always going to beat so the guys the guys who he would struggle against would be obviously uh, stan in his prime from 5 6 years ago it'd be Federer. and i think sinner would also be a, a match of problem for him but the guys he ended up playing and Sitsipas did really well i was really impressed by how Sitsipas played but in the other guys i i don't i don't I didn't I didn't think any of them like were ever gonna come close to beating him.
0: Yeah, I I to sort of before we talk like more historical big picture with this, just to kind of run through his tournament. So first round he plays Catobias Baena, uh three, four, and oh. So six three six four six oh. And I watched that entire match. Uh Baena was playing very well. Like he, he was you could tell it was like he was playing his like truly his best tennis Novak was playing so aggressive still won in straight sets and, and that last 6-0 set he was, Viana was just destroyed, he had no gas left
1: Dorker won and 84% then, of points on his first serve in that match
0: yeah, unreal, and that was also I think when the, the forehand was at a crazy like uh, miles per hour um, the next match he plays this Frenchman uh, qualifier Quoc- I don't know, I'm not I don't really know how to pronounce the name, Enzo Quocod <laughs> or something, but He does. He loses one set, but the sets he wins, and this is like a theme throughout this tournament, he wins 6-1, 6-2, 6-0. So when he turned it on, he was just destroying this guy. That's the only set he lost in the tournament. Then he plays... uh, Give me a second. I have the draw here, and it's being a little weird. Give me a second. Then he plays Grigor, right? So he has... uh, The first set goes to a breaker. Grigor's playing pretty well, and then it's 6-3, 6-4. And then it's the next... Is this the and then this is when I think he kind of turns it on to another level playing Just Alex the demon match. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of in that demon I'd say perennial top 30 at this point, sometimes like pretty good argument for top 20. I think, um, he beats him six, two, six, one, six, two, and like, uh, annihilates him. Uh, demon said, right. It was the best tennis he's ever seen played. Hmm. Um, yeah. Feel free to jump in with commentary, but we know then next he plays Rublev, who I think has a pretty strong claim to being a top 10, even top 5 player. Maybe top 10, top 7 player, I want to say. Uh, really the worst matchup for Rublev. Rublev needs to learn to do something else than just hit the shit out of every single ball. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> it,
1: but I mean, It really is play, a no, one-dimensional game, isn't it? It really is. so yeah.
0: So one-dimensional, and you can't like, the the worst matchup for someone playing Djokovic is a game that's one-dimensional. Whatever that dimension is, he's too creative, I think, to for that to ever have any shot at success. Um, and he annihilated Rublev. And also, I think Rublev's at this point in his career where he, like, knows he's kind of in his prime. He wants to – he feels like he should be competing for Slam. So there's a lot riding on that for him, and he still gets destroyed. Then we go uh, to his next round versus Tommy Paul. And this, again, the theme of him just ripping games out, he was up 5-1 in the first set, right? Yeah. Asher, is that, can we confirm? Yeah, he's up 5-1 yeah. in the first set. And then that got kind of weird, not totally sure what happens. He ends up winning that set 7-5. And then he goes 6-1, goes up, I think, 5-0 in the third. And then Tommy Paul strings together some games, ends up uh, winning that 6-2. So just incredibly dominant. And then my my hope going into this match against Sidji Pops was i wanted it to be straight sets just to kind of put a uh a exclamation point on like the historical level to which he's achieved and he did it by winning in straight sets even though it meant going to breakers um so incredibly dominant and then i think that helps us transition to kind of the historical picture of where this stacks up and i think to me the big comparison is uh what was a, What's a higher level in terms of like disparity between him and the rest of the world? Novak right now or Federer pre, uh, kind of in the Federer erotic years before Rafa really becomes relevant? What was a bigger difference between level versus the rest of the world? Novak now or Federer in that period? And the one thing I think that's relevant here to think about is in this tournament, it's like Novak's just star power and dominance and like feeling of being like a veteran is so superior to all the guys he's playing with. And I think though Federer was earlier in his career, there's this element of like mystique about how much better he was than everyone. And I'm just curious if anyone has any thoughts on that difference.
3: Yeah. A couple of things. So firstly, just when you, when you're going through his uh, his matches match by match and and watching him play this tournament, it definitely had a very, uh, Rafa had the French Open vibe to it in terms of how dominant he was, especially Rafa, like 06, 07 where you, you could kind of sneak a few games, but it was it was really dominant, right? And it felt like no one, no one was going to come close to beating him. And then going going to the the historical question, it's it's hard it's hard to judge right now because Novak is so dominant uh, at, in Australia. Um, I think Federer is, was was more dominant across the other surfaces, especially like the faster ones. Um, so I I still think that Federer in like 05, 06, when the only guy he was losing to wasn't wasn't it was Rafa on play, I still think that that was uh, he had he had a greater superiority over the rest of the field than, than Novak does right now. Really.
0: I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. I feel like Asher, I feel like you've been saying Novak's kind of the goat for a long time. So I'm kind of surprised to <laughs> hear you say that. Dan, Dan do you, have, well. any, Dan, yeah, do you so, have any thoughts of that difference?
2: I think one of the differences is that like Novak's game now is when Fed was in his dominance, like no one was playing like that. There were no comps, you know, like Roddick tried, but he could only hit from one side of the baseline. Like, no one had the complete package the way that Fed did between the movement, between the volleys, the serve, like he just had everything going. And his mental acuity, like he could adapt, like there was just nothing that anyone could do when he was firing. Whereas now there's plenty of players that have a game style similar to Mm. Djokovic being an all quarter, being Mm. incredibly fit, et cetera. But uh, you know, he just somehow always has two, three, four extra gears that other players can't match. And going back to the previous point where you know Novak kind of let us a, a set get to a breaker or get to like a seven five result, you almost kind of feel like he's just trying new things as though it's a practice session. Like he's in full totally. command and totally he just either that. wants more tennis or maybe he wants to push the hamstring a little bit more for the narrative. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but you never, you never get the sense that he's losing control, even when he gives up like a five-one lead.
1: Cabs. Nothing to add to that. That those are both extremely uh, spot-on and articulate.
0: Asher, anything else you wanted to say?
3: Um, no. Although I, I do have a theory as to why Novak is so good in australia when he isn't as because he's won 10 australian opens he's only won three us opens and i like my theory is that it it has a bit to do with the surface in that he hasn't there's been
0: how many how many how many us opens has he not there was he couldn't play last year because of covid restrictions right
3: yeah and then he got disqualified
0: in 2020. are there any so there are like he could have two more and maybe there's there's literally is, two that he didn't compete with, but still to your point, he didn't, it's still relevant.
2: He
3: didn't miss any because of injury, right? Uh, he, he no, he didn't miss. No, he missed. He missed uh, 2017, but that was also the same year as uh, the 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 adultery. So it's it's hard to distinguish. Well, between that was the, the elbow, elbow injury. And... All right, so he he didn't the participate in
2: three U.S. Opens over his career. I'm sorry, he yeah didn't compete in two, and he got DQ'd from one. Right. And the one he got yeah. DQ'd from was a weak draw. That was when what
0: wasn't it? Zverev played team in the final. Y- yeah, with the, with yeah. the, the <laughs> empty, the empty crowd, and the FDNY flags like
2: all yeah. over the place. Oh, yeah. that, yes. that was Zverev so was hard to watch. Neither a very dark. Win. That was a
0: dark. That was like the darkest moment in. Uh, and just, there's a very a lot of a lot of things going on but It was sorry, a weird match continue.
1: too. Zverev was up two sets, and then uh, team team in that bizarre tiebreaker they played in the fifth. I think.
0: Also, possibly the last time we ever see Team play at that level, but that's that's another conversation. I think
1: could be Zverev mm-hmm. as well, but we'll do another episode on that. <laughs> so keep going, Asher.
3: Oh yeah, um, we're, oh yeah. The the, the surfaces. Yeah, it, it it feels to me that the Australian Open, you the guys who play with heavy spin, they don't get as much off the courts as they do in the U.S. Open. So I think Ruud is a good example. So he got to the final, he played very well at the US Open. And he's a guy who plays with heavy spin. Rafa has a much better record at, at flushing than he does in, in Melbourne, which I think is also due to the spin. That's That's and a I great think point. that and I think that the the lack of spin means that you can't really um sort of hit heavy into into Novak on either side. And he he loves that ball coming at him at a sort of not too heavy but at a good pace and he just redirects, right? He's he's probably the greatest in history at, at just redirecting. And I feel like it's much easier to and he doesn't play with that much spin himself. So it's not like he's losing out on on sort of a, a less heavy ball that he hits. So so I think I think it's to do with that.
1: Related to that, how do you think the conditions uh helped him this year? So he played seven matches. Each round was a night match so
3: then the night matches i'm not sure it made a difference or to be to be honest i don't think he played anyone who would have beaten him in different conditions but i think so so the conditions this year uh, just to give just based based on what we've seen is that they're different in previous years and that the balls were really quick for the first two games when they were new and then they would fluff up a lot and then they were you you would get no action on them at all so you needed to hit Pretty flat to be able to hit it through the court, and I don't think anyone who he played was able to to penetrate him. But he was hitting a nice flat ball himself. He was taking it really early. So it, it would have been nice to see, like I said, quarter um, play Novak or even Holger Holgeruna uh, guy or even Sinner, but but we did not um yeah i think in in general the the courts really favor him and uh, the fact that the balls were even less heavy than they normally are uh, that just fed into it even more what do you make of like the fact that the
2: australian opens kind of it's kind of unspoken for in terms of being a slam and having like a a chip favorite champion right like you look at the french open obviously it's Rob's tournament even though the french really wanted it to be feds all these years mm. wimbledon belongs to federer i would say u.s open probably leans anyone but novak um <laughs> like the australian open from a kind of identity and also from a crowd perspective seems to be the easiest for him to navigate and you know in, in some ways i could say that or novak feeds off um like antagonism and being the villain but it's also kind of his most neutral setting in a way i don't know what they
0: and they
1: there's a baseline level of darkness there that he's able to embrace and not get get, uh, intimidated by
0: but but i think one thing dan's saying is like french you know the french put up the stat rafa has the statue at roland garros and in the in this the kind of trophy ceremony today they said like they called him the king of melbourne park but they're still not they don't seem like very quick to the punch to put up the novak trophy cuz he's kind of a controversial figure and so i i mean he should be kind of seen as like the you know that's his like he should i feel like there should be more of a a stamp for him there um i think but what's interesting there too is the just one more thing is the the amount of Serbian fans and the amount of Greek fans at these, at that tournament, in a way, today's final was kind of like, it was almost like the Homer mat. Like it was like almost like the hometown matchup in a weird way. Cause there's so many, I mean, like, you know, the Australian players, like some of the best players are Greek, Kyrgios, uh, Kokonakis. They're, they're obviously like have uh, ethnically Greek. Um, and then there's a, clearly a huge Serbian population there. So it's just interesting that, to Dan's point that they're, they they kind of haven't been super active to claim him, obviously, for a lot of kind of reasons unrelated to tennis.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if I was searching for this in the trophy presentation, but I'm pretty sure they were embracing him in a very hesitant way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's true. Yeah, but Dan, I-, I thought you made another point, right? Which is that the other torn- the other grand slams, like Novak feeds off the dark energy. But at the Australian Open, it's more of a neutral energy, and maybe he, he maybe neutral energy works better for him. He's he's <laughs> he's in a better place mentally with a neutral energy as opposed to the dark energy. Totally.
1: I, I think he gets low key the most negative energy from Wimbledon. Actually. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Especially dude. when he, I feel like that year he beat the most recent time when he beat Fed there. Really, everyone was pulling for. It's like the whole world was hoping Fed won that match and he still kind of pulled it out. Um, Or also
2: last year when they they did that champion ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, very weird. And Novak was still in the draw and Fed had never even played in the tournament. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of eerie. The,
0: The other thing that I think is relevant to this conversation is how important, like, I think for Rafa being good at US Open, part of it is he's such like a grinder, hard worker, kind of obsessive type personality that i think the whole like you're coming off playing other slams, you go into US Open series, you're you're m- playing a ton of matches and then you go to the US Open. I think plays very well to how he wants to feel. I think the fact mm-hmm. that the Australian Open is always kind of this like isolated uh, you know, it, it's kind of the standalone Grand Slam that's supposed to start the calendar. Obviously, for years, they've they've people have made comments about how the calendar is kind of bizarre in that way. Does that favor Novak at all versus like a Rafa or or someone else?
3: It's, it's 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 possible. I think I think when when people get to the U.S. Open, they are a lot more banged up uh, mentally and physically. But uh, also it could be I mean rhythm too. Yeah, rhythm as well. And Rafa is a guy who feeds off the grind, as you said. So if, he, if he's played a ton of matches and he's, he's loving the grind, uh, he goes into the US Open really uh, pumped up. While Novak, uh, he he enjoys his uh, his Christmas break in, in Serbia. He then comes in the trash. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that.
2: Dan, any thoughts?
3: Um,
2: I, I mean, I think that Novak is just so fit that it doesn't really matter where he is in like a sequence of tournaments, like he's going to be ready. Um, maybe maybe you can make an argument that some of the other players don't have the same either, you know, natural gifts or intensity that they hit January being in such peak form um, that maybe it makes for a slightly easier draw on, on Novak's behalf. But uh, I don't really see sort of any sort of calendar shape to Novak's game. It looks like he starts out hot and he ends hot. I like that. It's true. I also, there's something about
0: this, like, there's like different ways to look at the calendar. You can look at it as the U.S. Open is the end of the year. But I also think there's this thing where like some people come in, they have a good U.S. Open and a good Australian Open. I don't know there should be a name for what that's called, but like I think Kachanov had a pretty bad last two years. And then he kind of, the U S open Australian open has been good to him. And now we're kind of like, is this seeing this guy again, is he going to be kind of a, a true top 10? Could he be the best Russian? Um, I don't know. I think there's also, there's something there. And, and I think for Novak, uh, I agree with you, but also like you could see if uh, he kind of finishes the year, maybe like the world tour finals goes well, and then you're hyped up. You come into the Australian open. All right, but let's let's change gears uh, move on a little bit uh so one thing i think just the trophy ceremony for novak i thought i don't know if you guys he had a probably one of the longer speeches i've seen at these things um went into the crowd did some crying i thought his speech was the most he's looked like a dictator his entire career <laughs> and i'm just i'm really wondering if his he must be the most famous person in serbia i think i can say that pretty confidently um is, is he the, I, think, I think I've think looked it up. If he's not the wealthiest Serbian, maybe he's like second wealthiest, um, but in a country where the currency is not, you know, super strong his his like the, I think the, the kind of feeling of how wealthy he is from all the money he's made on tour versus other players is like incomparable. Um, I think he's a larger than life figure there. And I really thought after the speech today, there's a good chance after this, after his, uh, The tournament and this is from absolutely no intel at all this is purely conjecture he will become the uh the leader of of serbia after his tennis career
1: uh any thoughts i see it i've I've, seen it (laughs) we've spoken about this i think to me it was very clear he had political ambitions two years ago and when
0: I just remember one time he said he wanted to be a scientist if he wasn't a tennis player. <laughs> do,
1: we, do, we, do we know the context in which he said that?
0: I don't know, but I see it, dude. I could definitely see him. Uh, I don't know. Anything, any other comments?
2: I don't know if this necessarily dovetails into the prospects of his political career, but like one of the things that I kind of struggle with when I look at Novak vis-a-vis his relationship to Serbia, Serbia is how much of it is sort of the sense of it feeding his own ego where he's you know the biggest star he's most recognizable uh he's bringing like he on the back of an individual sport is bringing prestige to kind of a flyover country for not to be dismissive but you know not a tennis powerhouse by any means versus like truly carrying the serbian sort of narrative and arc over the last 30 or 40 years, which is, you know, dissolution of USSR, uh, civil conflict, kind of economic uh, incompetence or whatever. So I kind of see like both sides and I don't know which one is the more true version of of himself, Um, whether he's sort of taking what's being given or placed upon him or whether he's actually carrying the Serbian people on his back
0: and we also never know how much time these players spend in these countries because their travel schedules and then almost all of them sort of like live in Dubai or Monaco or Monte Carlo, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Dan made a great point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think very true. I think he did say today though in his speech, he said for him and Sitsipas, like there wasn't a model of like uh the best Serbian tennis player or Greek players, and that this was really like uh how important it is to to sort of dream big and and no matter where you are in the world that that you can attain what what he's been able to. Um, also, so,
1: all right. Is there any rift between Joker and Tsitsipas that we're unaware of? And the reason I, I say that is there was one line of the speech that I, I didn't really know where it came from where he looks over and he's like, you know, there's no reason why we can't compete at the highest level and want to win, but not also respect each other. And... Yeah, I,
0: I also, I also thought there was a weird kind of undertone to that whole. To it their, was weird the back and forth between them, any, the way they it,
1: looked at each other, the, the, the pausing. Sorry, Asher, I think
3: I think some some stuff might have gone down in in Labor Cup,
1: <laughs> but
3: <laughs> but
1: I'm not sure what it was. There's some some something something a bit odd going on there.
2: I wonder if it's like on the heels of an acute event or if it's just Sitsipas's reputation of the last three or five years between, you know, his dad and the personality and the encore coaching he was receiving when it was still banned. Obviously the incident where he took his phone in the locker room. Like he just kind of has this reputation of being immature uh or or um dishonest, I guess, in in, in a sense. Um yeah, he, which maybe definitely maybe definitely... Djokovic carries against.
3: He definitely does not have any friends on the tour um, for, for, for the, for the, for the cheeky listeners who, who aren't aware of his, um, his kind of reputation amongst the ATP community. Uh, I think it was, it was quite funny because a lot of people knew about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't really quite in the open until he picked Kyrgios in Wimbledon last year. And then he called Kyrgios a bully and, and Kyrgios replied with, uh, uh, the guys like me in the locker room. Uh, I'm good. I'm good with that. He does not have any friends. <laughs> no, one, no one likes them. I, I've never
2: seen a professional athlete who's so desperate for attention and yet so bad at, at getting it. Uh, it's <laughs> very true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. True. He needs like a PR team or something. Yeah. 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 I think so. To round out the Australian Open conversation, I wanted to say Kabir and I have been talking about this idea of what would an al- the algorithm look like to, to sort of decide whether Novak is GOAT versus someone else? And we were trying to come up with like how you would model that. And some of the okay. stuff, we, and I think this is relevant to coming back to what we said before about Fetter's sort of peak versus Novak's peak uh, in these different parts of their career, Novak now and Fetter pre-RAFA sort of. Uh, what we were talking about is like you take the best five years of their careers so you pick five years when they were the most productive and then five
2: five individual years or a five-year stretch
0: i think five individual years i think i'm okay with you just pick their best five years and then the things i would want to see is sets lost at grand slams like i don't think sets lost during the year matters i think sets lost at grand slams is indicative of their dominance historically in those in those years that you choose um, Kabir, what were some, were there other things we were thinking about other, other metrics you'd want to, and the, the ultimate goal of this is Kabir is going to approach a stats professor at Harvard and try and see if we can, <laughs> if we could do something with this. Any, what are some other, uh, metrics, Asher, Kabir, Dan, that you think you would want to throw in there without making this like I'd, overly complicated?
2: I'd probably put it to chat GPT and see what they come up with.
0: <laughs> yeah, we should, this is a
1: good chat GPT sure, sure. question. Yeah.
2: I think, I think you have to come up with some sort of model or or you have to do some sort of analysis around the competition and also the surfaces and ball that mm. they're playing with at different points in their career. Because you look at Federer pre-Rafa and the game was nowhere near as physical as it became and as Djokovic kind of became the best at, right? Like points were shorter, players were bulkier uh the flexibility the mariano puertas
0: the mariano puertas of the of the tour yeah
2: exactly exactly so like i think just the game has had like a transcendent shift of being you know either a banger or a grinder but only in those two camps whereas now like you can hit 130 mile an hour serves and cover the court you know like a demon are.
3: Yeah, that, that that's a very good point, because I you, you even talked about this earlier, that the game was so different in the mid-2000s. And Federer was basically the first real all-court player, right? Because as you just mentioned, you used to have the clay court specialists, your, your Thomas Musters, your Gustavo Curtins, your Juan Carlos Ferreros. And then you had the, the fast court specialists like Andy Roddick and then Agassi was good on fast courts and Pat Pat Rafter, and those guys would suck on clay and the clay quarters would suck on the fast courts and Federer was the first guy to to be amazing everywhere and part of that was because the the surface there was surface homogenization because people wanted to move away from the faster surfaces so that that helped but Federer was really the first guy now you look at Novak you have uh, Zverev, who plays in a very, very similar way, you have Medvedev, who's quite similar. He's kind of. But see, it's hold aggressive. on. I want to. I want
0: to warn you. You're getting into the sort of like narrative, uh, yeah, kind of yeah, history yeah. way of telling <laughs> yeah. who the goat is. I'm saying, what are statistical metrics that you would try and pull? Well,
3: statistical.
1: But I, 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 I don't. don't like I, I think it. You... I think it gets too complicated if you try to control for the environment in which they played because it's looking at looking at 2005 it's always going to change well what
2: about like the win-loss record of like their top not against each other but just win-loss record on tour of say their top 10 most frequent opponents right
0: yeah those are the things i
2: like
1: yeah
0: i think does it matter the win-loss record of like the other like the win percentage of everyone else in the top five that year is that a relevant statistic? Yeah, because
2: I think I think you want to see whether or not like a road to a, a victory is through like a hard draw.
3: I don't. I don't. I personally don't like. Um, well, head to head, heads in tennis have been uh, quite at the forefront of a lot of this this type of discussion in the past because it was it's kind of kind of unusual that Federer was had such a negative record against Rafa, who was uh, technically a worst player, but to win a tennis tournament. It doesn't actually matter who you play. Uh, It's just about winning the tournament, right? And a lot lot of the times, if you're in good form, sometimes it's out of your control who you end up playing. So I I find it hard to isolate um, head-to-heads from from the bigger picture.
1: Would you add Masters One Thousands? I would. would, Because of how much success Joker has had in those tournaments, but I think they're relevant. But that's relevant. I think that's relevant that he's had success in those tournaments. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah, but should it be Um, 1,000 win percentage or like overall victories? Because a lot of the guys didn't play in many of the 1,000s throughout most of the 20 teams.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but I, I,
3: I was gonna I was gonna add that if if you want a statistical argument, then I think Novak is the clear goat. <laughs> I, I I don't think it's particularly close if, if we just want to uh, look at statistics and take our context because he's he's one of the most masters. He's one of the most majors. Um, I think he's. But he's, even he that's why I'm behind. saying you do.
0: That's why I'm saying you do best five years because I think the totality of his career is always going to be better than Federer's. But to sort of like yeah. To sort of get away from because the, the thing is is that Fetter changed. I think Fetter's claim to the GOAT uh, first after this tournament, I'm I feel very confident that Rafa's number three. I think Fetter's yeah, claim yeah, still I agree, is that, I agree with that he did the most to change the sport and he set the level in a way that like paved the way for all these other players. Novak, and I think, I has think, reached the yeah. highest level and is statistically in the totality of his career is the most impressive. But as a way to compare them, that's what I'm saying. You pick their best five years, and I think the statistics should be a little less favored in the way of Novak, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm. I think also
3: no, – like... th- yeah, No, no yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. I, I was just going to agree and say that if we just look at the best five years, I think it actually is very, very close between Roger and um, and Novak. I think Roger's best year in 06. He went 92-5. Um, wins, losses, and then over 05 he went 81 and four, and I don't think Novak has come close to either of those two.
1: Also, 07 Australian Open, Federer won without dropping a set. Maybe one of the most impressive Grand Slams that he's had.
3: And then 20, and then 10 years later, 2017, he won Wimbledon without dropping a set. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. why I said I in,
1: sets
0: lost at Grand Slams, Dan.
3: To you,
2: I, I was just gonna say like I don't know if this necessarily fits into the argument we're trying to solve for, but like they're very different in the sense that. Federer throughout his career could just, like, take it to you and beat you. He was so aggressive. He could hit winners from anywhere. Um, You never knew what you were going to get. So, like, he's sort of in one camp. Nadal's in his own camp in that he plays every point, like, he's about to die. Um, And then Djokovic is in the other side where he just doesn't miss. Like, he becomes a wall. He finds ways where you beat yourself. So, they're, they're kind of different modes of success. Um, and I don't know if I could necessarily say that like one is better than the other. Um, but I think to the point of like what they bring to tennis and how they change the game, I think you saw an incredibly uh, aggressive player in Federer. And then you saw someone who just has every level and every tool at his disposal, the way that Novak does. That's Asher, anything also- to add? No.
3: Uh, all right, so what's, what, 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 what's, what's the solution? <laughs> what's the, the, next,
0: <laughs> the next step is we're going to keep developing this. I think everyone on this call uh, like an works, index. works in a, yeah, we we got to come up with something. We all work in relatively quantitative fields. I feel like this is a problem that, that could be solved. And I think there's a, I think starting with either the best five years, maybe it could be a little more than that though, is important. And we'll come back to what the uh, metrics are and we will publish on this. Um. So, uh, all right, that's all. I think for part one of this episode, that's all I have. If anyone has to jump off, like Dan, if, if this is a long call, if you have to jump off, no pressure. Asher and Kabir, you guys got to stay on for another 20 minutes.